Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The idea that something physical, like a physical journey, getting into your body and forcing yourself to really be in your body for most of the day, that that can create this space in your mind as well um and through that you can find find a way to grow or find uh, a new kind of a new path welcome to the adventure podcast and episode 70 with rob martineau when he was 27 rob took a plane to accra and walked a thousand miles taking him through Ghana, Togo, and Benin. He'd previously worked as a lawyer, but quit the office job to strike out on an adventure, and this walk was the result. Rob walked alone across the desert, through rainforests, and over mountains, carrying everything he needed on his back. He met shamans and priests, historians, archaeologists, and kings, and in his book, Waypoints, begins to confront the lines of slavery and exploitation between his home and theirs. It was obviously an extraordinary physical adventure, but also an inner journey of how a walking pilgrimage can change a person. And I'll leave Rob to tell you the story himself. Okay, over to Rob Martineau. guess a good place to start always the obvious place is just introduce yourself who are you what do you do thanks so much for having me have me on my name is rob martineau i am the writer of waypoints a journey on foot which is a book about a thousand mile walk i did in west africa some years ago and it explores tries to explore the reasons we're drawn to wander and the ways a long foot journey can reset a life um, and alongside that, I'm co-founder of Tribe, which is a natural nutrition company, uh, a running community and a charity that fights human trafficking. Interesting that the first thing you say is I'm a writer. Mm. Is that how you feel you are these days? Is you're, you're a writer by trade? Actually, no. I feel like my main reason for getting up each morning is uh, Tribe. It's something I've been doing for five, six years and I'm like super passionate about and it's something that occupies all my time but the book was a kind of long labor of love um the journey happened seven years ago and it's been something that I've been working on for a long time and so in this period now which is just after publication I kind of feel it's the first time I feel like a writer um and I think it's probably quite a common thing if the first book you know you never really feel like a writer although I was getting up at five every morning to write for two hours before work I I wasn't a writer because I didn't have a book. Really, that's how I felt. So now, perhaps it's uh, just having the book. I feel like I'm, <laughs> I've kind of at least become a writer. Um, but I, I still tribe is my main thing, and that's um, 
So really, I should have said I'm an energy bar maker. <laughs> Maybe that would have sounded less good. <laughs> no, that's ace. Yeah, I think you've got your badge of honor now. Um, cool. So how I'm really interested in how you go from, you know, childhood, who you are, who you were, um, to deciding to get on a plane and go and walk a very long way. Yes, this is quite a lot to unpick, um, I suppose. And when I started to have an, an idea that I wanted to journey like that, I was working as a corporate lawyer. So I was working in a large law firm, not very far from where we are here in Shoreditch. Um, and I would found I'd kind of fallen into that. Um, and I was living a lifestyle that began to feel wasn't right for me. I was working incredibly long hours. I was spending all my time inside. I was eating very unhealthily. I started to feel my physical and mental health kind of deteriorating. And I'd always been drawn, I think, from books I'd read, from perhaps some things in my family that I love this idea of like a long foot journey and that something like that could be a kind of therapy or a way to reset and repivot. Um, and really the journey kind of evolved out of that, out of a feeling of restlessness, a feeling of unhappiness. Um, and I was very, very lucky and privileged to have the opportunity to do a journey like I did because for most 99% of people, it's, it's not an option, but I had savings from working at a law firm. Um, and I was 27 and yeah, I spent ages looking at maps, thinking where would be a, a place that would be great to walk. And I'd always been really drawn to the region of West Africa I went to, which is Ghana, Togo and Benin um, on the coast there. And yeah, I, it was quite simple in a way. I bought once I'd made the, the mental jump that I wanted to do a trip like that. Um, essentially, just, just buying a flight and and had a pair of shoes. And I, I had some, I suppose, strange things I took into the journey. I was very wanted it to be, well, I saw, almost saw it like a fast, I guess, like a way to kind of take myself out of the lifestyle I was living before where I felt I had all these inputs coming at me from so many different directions, whether it was like partying too hard, whether it was like emails, work. I suppose lots of things that, you know, people living in central London probably feel, but I wanted to get away from all that, to live in a way where I was outside all the time, to have, I made a list and ensuring that I only had like 40 possessions with me. So to try and live in a much more minimal way. And one of the things that's explored in the book is the ways that living in that way, at least for me and some of the folklore, the psychology, the philosophy around it, um, how that kind of works I guess um, and not that I have any like great answers but I definitely find those ideas really interesting to explore and especially I think in modern life sometimes oh, I felt that things just weren't I wasn't adapted to some of the ways my lifestyle was pulling me and I wanted to kind of reclaim a new lifestyle I suppose through the wall. You mentioned there's kind of a family connection to journey as a form of therapy in passing what do you mean by that well i think you see and it kind of again something that i explore in the book uh, i lost my father when i was very small um and i'd always i guess like built him up in my mind so i was uh, four when he died as this kind of adventurer i suppose and he, he wasn't in many ways he was uh he was a lawyer but he'd always gone on these amazing like alpine Expeditions is probably a bit grand, but these kind of long, like cross country ski journeys across like glacier routes and the photos all in my house of, I don't know, with him and his friends kind of wrote, you know, with ropes and like ice axes. And I had these old uh, ice axes and these cool like sunglasses from the 80s, you know, like, um, 
kind of mounting kit. And as a child that, I don't know, it's funny that sort of those objects, although probably in terms of his life, they weren't like a huge part, but in when he wasn't there, they became something I kind of attached to. And I began to dream this idea of him when I was kind of a small kid as, you know, an adventurer. And as I was probably maybe not consciously, but trying to kind of grasp at what wasn't there, that became, I think, like began not cast a shadow, but it was something quite important. Um, and as I began reading more and more, he was one of those people who had books, like our house was just full of books. He used to spend all the time in secondhand bookshops and a lot of mountaineering books, so old expedition books, books and trips. Um, and I began I remember kind of, I would take them from where they were, which is in the attic room, my mom in the living room. And I'd sort of pull out my childhood books and pile up his books. And I just built around myself, I suppose, this idea of, you know, journeys. And I don't think I'd connected it, say therapy, but the idea of the, the way a journey can be a kind of therapeutic thing. But um, I'd sort of surrounded myself as a child with ideas of journeys as an aspirational thing. And I mean this with absolute kindness, but as a child, was that healthy? I don't know. I, th- I think, um, I think, I mean, I was a pretty happy child. I definitely, um, yeah, I don't think it had a, a negative impact on me. I mean, I think there's so much maybe that is unhealthy, but mainly that's around ideas. Exploration is obviously tied to very traumatic histories, essentially, Western people going out and it's, exploiting destroying other parts of the world and um particularly in the areas i was walking through there's huge like hugely traumatic history both with colonialism and slavery and so on and i don't think as a child at school or i was aware of those kind of things and i think it's only and i'm you know it's not like i've kind of fully kind of comes to terms with all that stuff or I can speak for those to tell those stories but certainly that's something that I'm much more conscious of and writing waypoints it's something that I kind of really grapple or try to grapple with that kind of tension of wanting to go somewhere and to have a kind of healing experience but also following in the footsteps of some of my kind of countrymen who have gone and not destroy, but cause like untold harm and damage to those places and the people who lived there. Um, and I suppose ex- the idea of journeying in that way, or not that I'm in any way like an explorer, but exploration or adventuring, I suppose, particularly in the part of West Africa I was in, is bound up um, with so many, I suppose, that history. Um, and so I think as a child or as a, a young adult, I was pretty naive um, and just blind to a lot of that suffering and how I kind of, I suppose that the history that I came, I come from as a, you know, a British person. It's hard, isn't it? I think I, I don't know if you remember the specific moment or the, the period of time where you realised that this whole history of exploration wasn't quite as golden, shiny and rosy as we thought it perhaps was when we were younger, but I think it has a profound impact on the way we look at these places and the past and where we've been and how we go there in the future, you know, terms like conquering, Mm -hmm. you know, are so antiquated now and really we should be pushing to one side. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you do remember it or. I think for me, and I feel like I've still, well, sort of still learn. I feel like particularly over the last 18 months, it's just been 
seeing obviously the terrible thing that happened to George Floyd and the, obviously the react, reaction pouring since it just I feel like I'm just learning so much each day and even what I thought two years ago or five years ago or ten years ago you know just feel like I'm kind of engaging more and just realizing how little I knew and how little I, I still know and I think one of those, those things I'm sure in two three five years time there's going to be more and more and I'll probably I may look back on this conversation or I may look back on things I wrote and just be like that you know I wasn't aware enough um, and I think there's a real one of the the things real kind of tension in the book I suppose is I wanted to write well I can't remember why I wrote the book so I actually did the journey and I didn't write the book um, then I wrote the book about four years later and it came the back of one of someone I'm very close to um, very sadly had a mental breakdown and I was visiting that person in psychiatric hospital um, kind of every other day and I began thinking then seeing how walking had was playing a part in his kind of recovery began thinking again about some of the the ways my walk had impacted me and some of the ideas around walking and healing and I it was at that point that I felt I had a a story to tell a story that was worth telling um and I really wanted to tell that that story but then at the same time to tell that story I need to tell a story of a white guy walking through West Africa and I think that there is like a tension there because the world doesn't need another book by a white guy walking in West Africa and I, I try and whether I do it well enough I don't know but I've tried to kind of capture that tension in a way and that those nuances but I'm also aware that ultimately there's always going to be a bit of an inadequacy there in terms of my ability to to tell the story of those places um and particularly as i try and draw quite a lot on some of the folklore ideas around community around um part reconciling the past that are very rooted in the places i was passing but those aren't my stories to tell and i i hope i've done it in a way that uh is kind of balanced and is um yeah, it is done. It's done well, but I definitely find it, dif- you know, difficult. Those those kind of tensions. Um, yeah, and there's obviously a, there's a slight difficulty around one, you know, white bearded guy telling another white Western guy that he agrees. But I think it's kind of that's a wonderful, honest awareness that is progressive, mm-hmm. because you could just not write the book, mm-hmm. you know. But I'm not sure that would be progress. Obviously, championing. Um, other people writing books, you know, minorities, female adventurers, et cetera, is great. But actually, you know, a white man writing a book in a way that feels new and progressive is, I would say, extremely important. Mm. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. I'm also really interested because you interested in the idea that you didn't just go and climb Everest or go and, you know, go and do a big, cold, snowy walk mm. somewhere. You know, it's not a traditional, especially if you grow up on stories of exploration and adventure, you know, why not mimic Scott? Why not mimic Mallory? You know, what was it about, and particularly West Africa, that Ghana sort of corner, what was it about that that inspired and motivated and pulled you? I think it was ultimately like the build-up of stories over time. I'd started reading books by Daniel Cree, and he's an amazing, amazing uh, writer who's um, lots of his stories kind of rooted in West Africa and I'd read lots of books written by writers who are either from or inspired by um, that part of West Africa and particularly Kanekana, Togo, Benin, Nigeria, which I didn't actually go to, but which is this 
it's amazing kind of cultural powerhouse and produced so many of the world's like best writers that is well for visa reasons for me at the time it wasn't an easy place to kind of do the kind of trip i was doing so i was i was, I was sort of drawn to that um part of the world by that build-up of stories and i find it's funny how things sometimes it's very hard to trace exactly why you do things i think um there's this great my favorite books um by this guy called Sebald, and it's called Austerlitz. It's an amazing, amazing book, but there's a line in it that goes something like, um, almost all, we take almost all the decisive steps in our lives through subtle adjustments in our, um, in our minds that we're barely conscious of. And I definitely feel with the reason I decided when I ended up walking in West Africa, I'm not almost really aware of it, became like lots of little build-ups through stories I've read that built up this image in my mind, some of which was probably completely inaccurate, but it was just like it turned it into an aspirational place um, for me. And that was what drew me there. And then I spent so much time trying to kind of create a route in that area. Um, and that process, again, I really love doing because you're then reading so much about the region, trying to understand more about where would be a good place to kind of walk and essentially i mean it's, to have that freedom is a massive privilege to be able to think oh i could you know i've got six months i can go here go there um and obviously it's not quite as simple as that but i love that process of trying to build and the reason it's called waypoints is that idea that you're kind of building a route with you know points along the way that that guide you um and and yeah and it's a in terms of that region of West Africa, is just such a rich, um, there's like ecology of beliefs and cultures. And um, if I, although I'm not a religious person in lots of ways, if I was kind of interested in, I guess, spirituality and the same way some people might travel to Jerusalem for those reasons, because it's got a historical connection to their kind of faith and the stories that built up in that place where other people go to Saudi or Tibet or wherever it is. I was drawn to that area of West Africa because I think this, I was believed there was such a rich, um, so many layers of spirituality there, whether it's Islam in the North, very strong Christianity in the South and um, kind of traditional religions um, all through. No, it's so interesting because I think as well, I mean, no, this is no criticism of how people do it, but so often we go to a place and we have no idea where it is we're really going. Whereas it sounds like you absolutely understood or at least have maybe thought you understood that place before you arrived and there was a romance there that existed before you land. Mm -hmm. I have a friend, Leo, who says um, uh, getting on the plane is, it marks the halfway point in the journey, Mm -hmm. which I really like as an idea. But um. Yeah, I wondered, you know, maybe this is an abstract way to take this, but I wondered if you'd just tell me the story of the journey. You know, obviously you were there a long time, lots happened, but with no time limit, just <laughs> tell me what happened. <laughs> That's such a strange, That's amazing, yeah, that um, comment from Leon. I definitely feel that. I think ultimately every day with a journey like that, it's kind of revealing something new and almost how little you knew beforehand. And I'd certainly gone in it with all sorts of, I think aspirations as well around trying to kind of prove myself to myself. Like I think quite a lot of the idea of old idea of like a, a walking pilgrimage is the idea that you have this element of kind of struggle and through that, that you are somehow forging something new in yourself or out of yourself. And I was definitely drawn 
to that idea, although maybe not sort of fully consciously. It's for the same reason people run ultra marathons, do lots of things. And I certainly was, I think, aspiring for something like that. And it quickly became apparent. I think one of the things about the journey was how kind of wrong that mistaken I was because all I've probably seen it as a kind of one guy on a very hard walk, um, a physical journey, but actually I was so reliant all the way on people, the people who took me in, in the settlements I was passing, the people who helped me out along the, the tracks and the roads. Um, and one of the really amazing things about doing a journey like that, uh, or being able to do a journey like that, is that I think walking and just with your backpack, stuff people see you as kind of vulnerable maybe um because you're just on foot and by yourself and so it created or at least in my experience it created this, this dynamic where i was just it felt very natural to kind of arrive in a, a place that was a long way from a store or a hotel or and people to go hey you can stay here and i pitch my tent and then we'd eat together and then i'd leave the next morning or I'd maybe stay two days um, occasionally and that was a really special way to kind of live for a short time. Although it's kind of fleeting all the connections you're building, right? Certainly when I think think back to that walk, I would love to be back in that lifestyle where every day you just have a very simple goal, which is I used to get up very early, maybe wake up at five, start walking 5.30, and I'd walk for between eight, sometimes 12, sometimes 16 hours for it a few extremely long days but normally like eight ten hours and my only goal was to get to whether the next village or a place where i could camp and then you'd eat i'd change i won't change your clothes you'd kind of rinse your clothes and dry on my tent sleep repeat and go again and that lifestyle um and just having what felt to me and maybe i can only speak from one side but very kind of natural interactions along the way it was such um a calming way to live um, and you just have so so much kind of space for your for your head or oh, i found i just had so much uh, mental space and when i walk um or i run i run a lot I mean, not, not, i'm not good at running but I, I run a lot and i definitely find that kind of mental freedom i feel most in life is when i'm walking or running um and yeah, sorry for not answering the question, but for me, the journey was really all the key kind of elements of the journey were those two things. It was finding through that kind of daily rhythm a new kind of way of a way of thinking, but a way to kind of clear my mind and to feel more settled. And then through the way I was kind of interacting with people in places to just learn more about life from those people in those places and I think traveling in that that way on foot I think it allows those connections to come through more sorry, better but in a way that's hard to achieve through other um other ways of traveling I've done like long bike rides and you know road trips and so on but I think yeah walking is just so slow that you're just you kind of slowly like immerse yourself in a place um and yeah, it was strange kind of thinking back to the journey. So I actually found the first bit of the journey so difficult. I uh, I didn't, I suppose physically, I, I thought I was in quite good shape. I probably wasn't. Um, but I just remember the first day walking out of Accra. Accra is a very big modern city, Catalogana on the coast. And it's, um, imagine kind of walking out of London or whichever city you're from. It's like quite, 
it's not that easy actually if you're trying to walk um out of Accra into the kind of countryside and I remember that first day just feeling like complete idiot <laughs> you kind of look a bit weird you've got your kind of backpack you had a stick and trying to kind of make it from kind of downtown Accra into like you know ultimately the kind of forest region to the north and then getting very lost and everyone kind of ultimately having to ask people's help and then just rocking, landing up on a highway and it's <laughs> yeah, a bit like not quite like the M4, but you know, just like then kind of being on the on the side of the road, like walking along, and all the truckers are kind of hooting at you, and like um, in a like friendly way, but it just felt a bit like, what are you doing? <laughs> you must look like so stupid. Um, and then the first few days, I then was kind of walking in that region, um, which is the region just north of Accra, the kind of coastal plain. It's it's kind of quite a dense forest and there's quite a lot of kind of cocoa plantations as well so it's kind of a mixture of the two and I walked for a week or 10 days to Kumasi which is the kind of second city uh, in Ghana it's a lovely place um, but I found that section so difficult because it was and it's suddenly the kind of heat the humidity the feeling of the pack and I was trying to walk probably between 20 and 30 miles a day and then my stomach was reacting really badly and I just remember feeling so kind of weak um, and you kind of only got two choices you kind of walk back to the last village or you walk on to the next one and I definitely had a lot of kind of doubt about what I was doing and it's something that I had quite a good job for my day <laughs> you know you're like why did I do that and um, I, and I wish I could not be here um, but those kind of feelings sort of fell away like each day you're just a bit better to the lifestyle of the journey and, um, and get into it and quite quickly it became yeah, over the first two weeks something that I began to really feel lucky to be doing and feel that I, although it was elements of it were quite difficult I was feeling like I was kind of gaining some you know something through it and my, I was beginning to kind of sleep better I could feel myself kind of almost like I was settling into myself in a way that I the lifestyle I was living before was it kind of pulled me in a direction that I wasn't very comfortable with how I was living and I did begin to feel that kind of calming um, through the kind of, I think the routine and being made to feel by the people in the place I was passing, like I was somewhere that I belonged, but that I was very welcome, in, which is, you know, very, from my experience, like one of the very special things about traveling in those, um, you know, those countries. Has it altered your view of Western culture? I think in some ways, yeah. Um, I certainly, I think one one of the things or a couple of the things I've found there, and these can seem like kind of cliches, and I don't mean them too. So two of the things, one was, so was in the places I was passing, there's a very clear kind of sense of community often. Um, and you felt like you were kind of in, almost in a, in a community in a way that I've, at least in the lifestyle I'm living, I, I don't, feel necessarily that I'm in a kind of community that's tied to a place. And I sometimes feel quite disconnected from place. And I don't think that's something necessarily about Western culture, but I think it's probably something about me living in central London and maybe the way I live my life. Um, but certainly it made me think that there were a lot of benefits to being kind of grounded, more grounded and more kind of tied to a place and a feeling of belonging in a place um, that I think in some of the places I passed in 
Garnatoga and Benin seemed to come through very strongly in the places I was passing, that there was a very strong sense of being part of a culture and being part of a people and being part of a, a community oriented around, um, you know, the, the, the village or the town. And I certainly thought that there was a lot of benefits to that and that I was maybe lacking, not lack, but lacking a dimension of life or something that we could provide additional fulfillment by how I was kind of living, which is, I don't know, moving from flat to flat as a like young 20-year-old in London, not really being connected to the people I was living around. Um, and I think it's something that certainly in the early stages of COVID, people seemed to feel that they were kind of trying to reach into that kind of dynamic where they were trying to connect with their local community again. Um, and so I think that would be one thing. And then the second thing um, that definitely came through for me was, I suppose, relationship with the past, I think, and with death. Um, certainly for me, as the journey went on, I became more and more aware that there was thinking about my father and that kind of loss and that grief, and maybe it was something I'd never really kind of confronted. And certainly in some of the regions or places I passed and some of the communities I passed was a very different way of um, dealing with grief and dealing with the past than at least in my family in England we had um, yeah we had kind of marked the passing of loved ones very differently and almost not to say shut them in a in a box and not that they're not there but certainly there was a for me there seemed to be much less like active remembering and active um especially marking the you know the passing of people who had died whereas in the shanty regions i was in in um, in southern ghana or in southern benin it felt like there was a much more of a communal and demonstrative um uh way to kind of engage with you know ultimately loved ones who had passed and it made me think that that was i should be doing more of that <laughs> um, but it's not an easy thing to, to do because ultimately and probably it was not necessarily in my nature i'm quite kind of private going with it i don't know <laughs> um but yeah i think those were two things that that really that really came out um and then just it's not something that was is kind of West African in any way, but just in terms of my lifestyle there, I was just outside all of the time. I would maybe, sometimes I'd be outside for four days without stepping foot in an inside space. And that just doesn't happen to me in, in my, again, it's not so much a regional thing, but just in my lifestyle I live in um, in London. And definitely I think there were huge, were huge benefits I felt to that. Um, to being outside so much to sleeping outside I slept so well I would be asleep by like seven, seven that's an exaggeration nine every night um, and then up at five and I wouldn't need an alarm I'd just wake up and the fresh air the exercise all of those things I suppose that most people know this but they that does just create I think so much healthier headspace and I really found that and it definitely I was thinking when I actually reflected on my lifestyle before I would being inside for like 22 hours of most days the only time the outside was getting from one inside to the next it was the like five minutes from Liverpool Street Station to the office it would be the five minutes going from the office to the sandwich place and that's really weird I don't know to be living that way to be so shut off from fresh air and um, definitely now with 
it's a lifestyle I have with tribe is a bit different. I'm definitely outside much more. We're all about trying to get people outside, um, you know, taking physical exercise and trying to kind of, I try and live in a way which is much more in tune with that. Um, certainly that's something I've tried to, and it's not always easy, but tried to kind of create time for since the walk to make sure that I'm spending much more time outside. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So were you a spiritual person? Would you have described yourself as a spiritual person before you went? No. <laughs> and now? I'm not even sure now. I think I, I really believe in the power of those kind of journeys, I think, in, in terms of to be, uh, and it doesn't need to be, you know, a thousand mile walk in, in somewhere quite far away from where you live isn't, is obviously quite extreme. And it's in a sense, something that most people are just not going to have the opportunity to do. I was very spoiled to be able to have that opportunity, but I definitely think elements of the idea of a walking pilgrimage, whether it's a climb or it's a, uh, or swim whatever it is i think those really believe in the power of something as simple as that and something like that that can have a completely transformative effect on on a person and on a person's self-esteem on a person's ability to kind of have purpose and direction and i think from that perspective i probably am i guess if that's spiritual but i'm not someone who engages necessarily with like religion and kind of personal way but I think there are lots of other things that I, I suppose encountered through the walk um, whether it's ideas around kind of trancing or um, psychedelics or uh, that I'm really curious about and I've become more and more I suppose to believe that some of those things can have a really positive like powerful impact um, on our minds and on our ability to kind of live happy fulfilling lives and a lot in some parts of the world some of those ideas are very closely bound up with what we might say is spirituality and in other parts of the world or for other people they're completely detached from spirituality and i'm not, I'm not sure i necessarily know which one I'm, <laughs> i would uh, go towards but i i'm very like, curious about those kind of things and i remember in ghana for instance i um it's an amazing um priest called Nana Abbas and he runs a very um, impactful I guess um, temple and religious center in um, North Kumasi um, which is a big kind of city and he's had a really transformative impact on his kind of local area as a kind of as a leader and he's a very articulate very um, inspirational guy but I went to some of his um, I guess like festivals, maybe you call it, um, or kind of ceremonies. And it's really interesting seeing the kind of, I guess, 
like trancing, like people um, engaging with trance. And I began reading a lot about kind of trancing um, after meeting with um, Nano Bass. And it, it definitely it seems that there's some people who think that actually it's really important for humans to find that space in a way and to access those altered states of consciousness. And there are obviously lots of ways to do that, but I, I would then got interested in how kind of, and it's explored a bit in the book is like, how can walking or like running, where do those intersections kind of sit? Um, and because the book's really about walking, I was looking to yeah, explore those ideas. And there's some amazing stories from different parts of the world, whether it's, so-called kind of marathon monks who are in um, Japan who use kind of these long um, long runs over years to find kind of mental peace or to find an ability to like connect with something higher. Um, there's an amazing um, book by um, Govinda about a pilgrimage he did in the 40s um, in the Himalayas and again which looks at um, this kind of mystical trance running that some monks um, used to do there. And I love those ideas, the idea that something physical, like a physical journey, getting into your body and f forcing yourself to really be in your body for most of the day, that that can create this space in your mind as well. Um, and that through that, you can find find a way to grow or find uh, a new kind of a new path. Um, and so... Again, sorry for going around, but <laughs> because I find that those those ideas are really compelling. I'm not sure I have any like answers. Certainly don't have any answers, but that I would know necessarily where they where they leave. I think there's a lot there, and I think there's again not to sound sort of grand or grandiose, but I think there are kind of problems with the way we're we're lots of people living at the moment in terms of being. Kind of shut off from nature in terms of being shut off, cutting themselves off from their bodies almost, and from you know, living in a more physical way. And that we see, we sort of see that come through in kind of increased mental illness. And I, I think we need to be having more of a conversation as a society about um, how we can ultimately well, simple again, more active, spend more time outside in the natural world. Um, and that goes well beyond the book and well beyond probably what I'm qualified to talk about but I definitely just from my own experience and in my own head I began to really I really felt that through the my experience walking yeah no and I'm really interested in it as well and I think maybe it is worth trying to unpack some of it I mean I don't know what you think about some of the ideas you're talking about this whole you know some would call it flow state this whole trance like feeling that we get from walking long distances or running and those different headspaces alter consciousness. Do you think that that's something that we've just learned to access that a small percentage do, or actually something that we've lost as a society because we don't do it much anymore? I think definitely. And again, it's something I look at in the book. There's awfully I've forgotten her name, but there's an amazing um, sociologist who did this kind of meta study on um, trancing, and she concluded, I guess, from her studies, I think that trancing was like a biological capacity that I think it was like 90% I forget the figures of people from all different cultures seem to have so I think it's something that all I think we all have the capacity to it but we've obviously we lots of people have lived in a way which has cut themselves off from that ability or that 
practice, I suppose, not ability, but we've, I think I had lost, hadn't been brought up and had through my lifestyle lost the capacity to kind of connect with that state of mind. And, um, flow state again is something I look at, explore a lot in waypoints. It's the, um, guy who, kind of has written most about flow state and who kind of came up with it as an idea in a way is Mahali Chicks Mahali, who's a Hungarian American um psychiatrist, psychologist, sorry. Um and he talks about he's a great climber. He talks about um finding flow and climbing. And his idea is that humans are happiest when they're in this flow state. And it's a kind of sense of you know, sure most people listening and you guys will have had it as well it's a sense of kind of euphoria you get from concentrating when you're concentrating on a task really hard and you lose your, your sense of time and he lists the various characteristics to being in flow he's, he's written some amazing books on there where he's gone out to written a while ago but gone out to kind of very remote villages in switzerland and interviewed um people living there to kind of ballet dancers to kind of these amazing welders in the midwestern states and he's ties together this um i suppose their anecdote their experiences into into a kind of theory but he yeah talks about it two things i love like chess and i'm really into kind of mountains and he uh, talks about it playing chess was the first time he felt it when he was a child he was in a refugee camp in italy um and he he got really into chess and he found that that as i don't actually know how old he was maybe 10 12 that that was found this kind of escapism and this like immersion in the activity and that almost like carried him to a higher state and as an adult he talks most about it climbing he talks about finding this kind of communion with the rock when he's climbing and that through that he accesses this yeah that elevated state of mind and his i suppose idea is that we should all be looking finding outlets where we can feel that feeling and uh, you know it's quite a common thing like sports people we talk about it as like being in the zone um but it is the semi-euphoric almost maybe it is spiritual i don't know i mean i suppose the lines between like spiritual and not are so blurred um and again in in waypoints i try to i suppose look at those ideas through both from a kind of psychologist perspective and through maybe some of the folklore of where I'm from in, um, uh, in England and also in the place I was passing in West Africa and to try and I'm really interested in that like mysticism as well as the I guess the the more kind of science-based um, yeah exploration of those ideas. But isn't it fascinating how it's I don't know if it's just um, Western prudishness and our approach to certain ideas but one culture's mysticism is another culture's kind of flow state in a way or access. So, you know, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs are all micro not all, mm-hmm. some are, a significant percentage actually of, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you know the, the stats yeah. too, but a microdosing LSD to try and access these interesting states and obviously adventure and travel and um, sport and nature is one of the easiest ways to access um, these states. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, maybe it's a dark rabbit hole that we shouldn't peek into, but it's. Def- I think it's a really interesting. I, I write a bit about Iboga and Waypoints, which is um, so psychedelics. Maybe the wrong word for it, but it's used um, traditionally in Gabon as a, a drug that can, and not everyone in Gabon, but within certain people in Gabon traditionally, and is a way to access 
kind of spiritual connection or to help facilitate a spiritual connection um, with the land, with the past. And yeah, it's really, I think it is really interesting seeing how those same ideas take root or are practiced in communities which appear so different because is it so different what people are looking for? How different is, is it what we're looking for, whether we're in Silicon Valley or in different parts of the world? And again, I don't, I don't know the answers um, to that, perhaps overgeneralizing, but I think it's when you hear Steve Jobs say that taking LSD was like one of the two most important experiences of his life. It's, there's a lot there. Perhaps we've, it, it seems, it feels like there's a, a big shift, at least to being more curious about those things and opening up as a society to the possibility that those types of experiences can be valuable. And I, I don't know the answers and I'm not going to sit here and promote, you know, like taking psychedelic <laughs> drugs, but I think there's certainly like a lot of interesting um, writing on it at the moment. And a lot of these things are really ancient and lots of things that are very ancient, have a very ancient for reason, you know, they've been, people have been doing it for a very long time because they offer something. And I definitely would go in when I would look at something like that. I definitely would go in, I suppose, with that awareness or some sort of that mindset. Whereas I think sometimes, at least in mainstream media in this country, there hasn't been a way to kind of look at things like that. Yeah. They've sort of shut down in a way that perhaps without really like exploring yeah. the possible benefits. Yeah. And I really am going to stop talking about it now. But my, my last point on it is. <laughs> You know, it's very normal for us to go or for society, Western society, to be encouraged to go and drink three or four pints of beer mm. on a Friday night or a Saturday night. But the idea of, you know, having a tiny quantity of something that might alter your mind for the better mm. um, is seen as a negative. And again, I'm not going to sit here and promote people buying LSD and taking it at home. But the whole idea of, you know, taking ayahuasca in a controlled environment in a place where it may be not originated, but it's appropriate to take it or um, mm. culturally appropriate. I don't know. Can I frown at that? Well, I've got my personal views on it and, <laughs> you know, again, have to be careful not to promote stuff, but. No, no, I think it's, it's really interesting. And it's not something in, in waypoints and the, I suppose a bit that I'm also comfortable talking about is like how those, I suppose, connect with walking and find, trying to find those kind of states uh, or something not exactly a state, something closer to those, that freedom of mind and that state of mind and flow state through walking. Um, but I try to pull together lots of, whether it's like through or John Muir, there's so many interesting writers from back in the day who kind of explore, feels like every, a lot of people are trying to get to something that is, get towards the same thing, but it is that idea of like, connection with what's important and ultimately through when he went to his cabin at Walden he was trying to find that like connection with what the essence what he used to tell us the essence of life the essence of what is it and I think any of these type of experiences we're trying to kind of through them find our place in the world and find connections with things that we sense are there but we can't quite see or reach um in other ways. And I, I find it interesting the way, again, a waypoint is trying to look at it, that how far people are prepared to go sometimes to try and near those kind of states. One of the, um, 
this one kind of book or experience that I look at waypoints um, just by a guy called Richard Bird, who's a um, he was like a polar aviator in the 30s and he's wrote a book called Alone, which is now out of print. You can kind of uh, find a copy of it. But it describes the experience. He um, went basically to take, carry out kind of meteorological um, meteorological surveys of a very remote part of the Ross Ice Barrier. And he, um, he lived there by himself for five months in this kind of shelter made of ice he was like 100 miles from the nearest kind of person with a radio and he talks about he writes this very it's kind of a diary in a way it's quite kind of um it's simple but he talks about his way of life there but finding these kind of mystical states as well and he used to go on walks each day and he used to carry kind of bamboo little bamboo sticks and he'd plant them along the way every hundred yards if he didn't he would he could be only a few hundred yards from his hut and if the weather turned he could be completely lost and he writes his beautiful he writes very beautifully actually but again it's like why are you there what you're not really there to carry out meteorological readings i mean that's kind of like a mask you've put on in a way it's like well that's the way you're justifying it and he goes into this but almost to to give it a kind of purpose that makes sense to other people but there's something else you're trying to find there and he kind of he does go into it and i try, I, I find it really interesting finding those and again waypoints look at them kind of obscure old experiences from people like that who actually have so much to say and um and there's a, another amazing lady called Edith Bond who um, was imprisoned in Hungary in the early 60s um, as the Hungarian authorities believe she was a, um, a secret the kind of secret, British secret agent and she wrote a book she was held for seven years in solitary confinement and she's an amazingly resilient person but about how she like occupied her mind and the kind of habits and mental mind games she played each day to kind of keep herself sane basically and to keep surviving and there's again it's so i find it's kind of in the book it's so interesting the lengths people go to how people react in really extreme environments or extreme settings and how somehow they seem to be able to find new parts of themselves and um and he is born again it's i think it's out of print but it's um it's a really interesting um interesting experience she goes in often well, again, this is probably going off a bit of a tangent. One of the things I find really interesting is people in solitary, who are held in solitary confinement for long periods often will go on long walks in their minds as a way of a kind of distraction. And so Edith Bond writes about every day she would imagine herself, um, she imagined herself trying to walk home from where she was in um, Hungary back to the UK. She went on this journey four times in her mind and each time she kind of got to the channel. So she would imagine in like granular detail that kind of journey on foot um, and she writes about it and each time she gets to the channel um, and she couldn't imagine herself swimming. So she kind of, almost the daydream kind of fell apart because she wasn't able to realize it vividly enough but those kind of mental games were a strategy to survive um and there's again alexander solzhenitsyn writes about this prison there i think it was lavorto which is a terrible soviet prison um and a guy who did the same he used to walk every day in his cell up and down and he was under all sorts of emotional like stress he was being tortured but he see himself as having stayed alive through 
this journey each day that he would do in his cell, walking these steps. And he actually would actually count the steps. It was almost like mental arithmetic. And through that, he was visualizing a journey, escaping where he was in Russia and um, going back to across Europe. And I find that so interesting. It's almost like our minds, or some of them, say, well, it's not everyone, but generalized, but it seems like lots of people's minds kind of tuned into the idea of like, Walking is kind of how we can visualize. And this comes up so much in our language. We talk so much about like making progress or there's a whole like language around that about which kind of draws on walking and like milestones or whatever it is, you know, they're kind of filtered into all of our language. And, um, and then one of the reasons I think the idea of a walking pilgrimage is so powerful is because it connects with something so simple. You kind of, if you can't really see where you want to go in life, at least you can kind of revert to a plan that's get from A to B and you know how to do that. And it's just one step at a time, one step at a time. Um, and that can help you because you realize that you can do that. And if you can do that, then maybe you can work through some of the other things you haven't been able to work through in a more complicated real life. You say that the journey was, you intended it as a kind of personal therapy, right? That was a conscious choice before you left. Did it work in the way that you thought it would? Yeah, it's really difficult. I also think it's really difficult. Memory is such a funny thing. So I think I talk about it now as like, I knew that was something wasn't right in my life. And I, uh, I wanted to find a way to kind of change direction. And, um, but I think writing about the, the journey, it almost kind of, there's a danger you kind of reformulate or you look back with implying a much more certainty than you did when you set out and you kind of tell your own story in certain ways. Um, I'm not sure I, whether I found, I think I, I certainly came to the, when I came to the end of the journey, I remember feeling quite unsettled, but like I've come, I, during the main body of the journey I once I got into it I felt like I was really doing what I should be doing and that I was living in a way that I really loved and it was really good for me and then I came to coming to the end I felt that like shit I've got to get a job again you know <laughs> I've got a kind of all of the other things start kind of coming up but I definitely think it it grounded me in ways that I still kind of benefit from I don't know in that an arrogant way but certainly through tribe and I've been very lucky. I set up Tribe with two old friends and we have this amazing community of people who are once kind of running and, and we do loads of amazing journeys. We have this thing called Run for Love, which is a, a series of kind of ultra marathons. Um, we have a foundation which um, supports victims of human trafficking. And the idea is a community of runners come together and do these long runs to raise funds for our charity. And a whole load of things kind of filter off that. Like I, it means I'm leading runs in October times in the Lake District or on the South Downs with a group of kind of 40, 50 people. And I definitely feel that I'm really lucky to be able to kind of keep tapped into some of the really positive elements of the lifestyle that I lived when I was walking in my day-to-day -day life through Tribe. Um, and I think I learned a lot about I try and live really simple. It's almost like it's keeping life a bit simpler. Um, and I'm not necessarily, don't always practice what features at all, but certainly the walk did show me how much better I felt when I was just keeping things really simple. Um, you know, walking, not much stuff, sleeping, eating. <laughs> and not that life's like that, but I, I, uh, I, 
I try and carry that through now. Um, and so I think I'm really grateful to have had that experience and feel that I've, I took a lot from it personally. Uh, did you struggle to come home? Yeah, I think I did. I think it was a strange thing coming home. I, um, but it was also really nice to see, you know, friends again and to feel that like, you know, to be home in certain ways. Um, but I struggled a bit to kind of coming back into London and, I don't know, quite quick. It's amazing how quickly you're kind of, it feels like a distant memory. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, the trip. And so I, um, writing it actually those years later was a really amazing experience as well. I got so into that and I really, I learned so much from the writing process and from my editor is amazing. And it definitely kind of made me think about the impact of the journey and the journey much more. Is there anything from the journey now, things that you held on to that you struggle to replicate, even with the long runs and the community? And yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> I think there's lots of it. I um, and I wish I was, in some respects, more more able to, I suppose, to take long periods out and just have nothing to think about except, you know, the journey ahead. And I, I have a lot. Of, responsibility at Tribe in sense. I mean it's a small business, there's ten of us, but that's my my thing, you know, and I need to be there for my team. I need to make sure that the pallet pea protein isn't stuck in Felix Doe. I need to make sure the packaging is compliant. I don't know, there's like a whole host of things. And so definitely although Tribe is funny because although I'm I'm just like fully immersed in it and I love it. Um, and it allows me to do so many amazing things. And I'm so grateful for that. At the same time, you kind of never switch off because for the last six, five, six years I've been doing it, I've always been like so kind of fired up for the next thing that's coming, whether it's the next product we just launched breakfast range, whether it's like getting that out right and then seeing, making sure that it launches. But that means I'm constantly, like if I'm running on the weekend, I'm thinking what's, you know, how are we going to, make that breakfast range better how are we um gonna create a really cool new office for when we move how are we gonna and so i'm constantly my mind is constantly on all those things um in probably quite an obsessive way and in a sense i love it but thinking back to the kind of freedom i had with no other things to think about beyond the journey that was a really special time and not something it's not something i necessarily want because i love tribe and i love uh, you know the life I lived through it but I definitely am always kind of on through tribe and that's something that I especially when I was writing waypoints I kind of really realized and it would be you know it was a, a lot, I think we all go through periods maybe when we have that opportunity to be or, or to be a bit freer and um and yeah I look back at that with fun, fondness I guess. Do you have any desire to do something like that again? Not right now. I mean, I should say, actually, I've been very lucky to last summer. I did with some friends the alt route, which goes from sort of Chamonix to Zermatt. And it's normally a glacier route. You do skiing. And we did it kind of, I guess, like fast mount- run mountaineering. So we had our kind of ropes and our, we're staying in huts. And I try and do trips like that. That was like a week. Um, so I, I definitely am still trying to... T- to sort of find um, opportunities to do those kind of trips. Um, but I don't think I've, the minute I don't have any desire to go off and do an, another really long one. Um, and I, I don't know how, I wouldn't, 
I need to have quite a purpose, or feel like there was quite a purpose to it. And I don't feel at the moment, you know, feel like I've got a lot of purpose with Drive and, um, and that's kind of my focus. And then I, I feel like I've, I want to take on those little, like, I see them as like escapism. I'm doing like a Mount, something called Ultra Tour Monterosa in, um, in September, which is like a hundred mile mountain race in the Alps. So things like that, I will, I, I kind of see as my, like, I'm very lucky to be able to do them. And they're the things I kind of look to as the next like journey rather than yeah. Yeah, another year long. <laughs> yeah. One thing, just to backtrack ever so slightly, um, we talked about Africa and your experiences there really positively. Mm. And that's brilliant and wonderful. But did you always feel safe? Was it a wholly positive experience? I always, I actually always, always felt safe. I would get warned quite a lot moving from um, region to region. So when you, not that the lines are kind of fixed, but broadly, if you cross from, I suppose, an area where it's a bit more rural and farming based and um, to a region that's uh, a bit drier and there's more kind of maybe nomadic herders, I would be warned crossing those kind of thresholds that the people in the next place are not like where you've just been and you're going to get in trouble. I think that happens everywhere in the world. Um, but by and large, I never felt unsafe. Um, Ghana, Togo and Benin are really safe places to be. Um, and I don't think there's anything more dangerous walking the length of Ghana than there is walking the length of, you know, from England or wherever. I mean, it, I think there are different challenges because I'm not as well adjusted to uh, maybe the climate or and so physically particularly northern Ghana where it's, it's dry and it's really really hot that I found um, difficult but I um, but yeah I had never felt kind of danger like I was in danger yeah I actually just didn't never had any experience I think there was a lot of particularly around the kind of her the herders in, in northern Ghana, I would just be warned the whole time. Um, and it would kind of have like roadblocks and it would be kind of, but it, I think it was more just people's perception. Like I never, I think settled people, people who live in, you know, on their own land, often there are tensions with nomadic people. And I think that comes through, comes through in this country as well with like, prejudices against travelers and i think those say it's the same but i think there were kind of similar things at play in northern ghana and certainly i would yeah i would be warned the whole time especially everywhere north of kamasi when i saw um there were policemen or soldiers at kind of checkpoints on the road they would be like you really got to be careful and they were being really nice but they had a often a sense that the nomadic herders would were somehow dangerous um and this but I just never had any negative interactions and I never felt unsafe um, ever, actually. Um, and that was, I think, but <laughs> Ghana, you know, Ghana and Togoman, and they are, I mean, not to kind of make it sound as adventurous or anything, but they are just, you know, safe countries. And I think often there's also what makes it, or at least made it feel safer for me is that there are often, I guess, like, very strong communities and so you just you feel like you're passing through places where people are looking out for each other and looking out for you um, and I definitely felt that um, which again made it an amazing place to, um, to, to walk so 
big questions we draw to a close. Maybe too big, but <laughs> what did you learn? <sighs> I got asked this the, the other day. Someone asked me, it was like, did you learn the meaning of life? And I was just like, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I find it so difficult to kind of uh, articulate that, I guess, and not to sort of sound like I found something really grand. So I, I, I don't think I did. I found out a lot about myself and what makes me happy, I guess, and, f- and feel like I'm thriving. Um, and a lot of that's really simple stuff. And it's not any kind of grand idea of, you know, life or it, it's more like keeping a routine and engaging, opening up for connections, which things that I, with things that I think make me feel happy and positive and fulfilled. And that's really simple things like being around nature, living outside, um, having an element of like daily struggle, I think is really important. And one of the things about a walking journey like that or a pilgrimage is each day you have a very simple task to accomplish and through accomplishing it, which is like walking the miles, that creates a feeling of self-esteem and of purpose and of progress. And that feeling generates its own momentum. And I certainly feel that the walk helped me see the power of that um and certainly not that i'm thinking about it every day or anything so i'm not but certainly when i step back and i try and think about where my life is going or where what i want to achieve over the coming months i kind of do like retreat or return to that sort of feeling um and i suppose reflect on what i i took from that um, and that's why i think a long foot journey can be so powerful because i think it can really help give a person that I can't help but agree. <laughs> so I always ask people two questions at the end. Um, what scares you? I think losing the appetite to keep doing, I suppose, things that are very different and that really challenge me. And I think it, it frightens me that I might, yeah, lose that or it's, it's, I suppose we treat too far into a different way of life um, and that I would lose that kind of desire to, to, to try and push myself and do those kind of things. Um, and I hope, certainly would try, but I've just got around me so many people who kind of force me to, <laughs> to do that. I feel that the moment, hopefully that isn't the fear that will be realised, but I feel like incredibly lucky to, I suppose, being on this kind of journeys and I, I really want to keep living in that way around you know, outside and pushing myself and able to have kind of adventurous experience. Nice. What brings you hope? <laughs> what brings me hope? I think, again, it's, it's cheesy, but with Tribe, so much of, I suppose, what we do every day makes me really hopeful, whether it's seeing, you know, the team grow, whether it's through the work of the foundation, which provides kind of cares people have been through unimaginably difficult circumstances victims of um, of human trafficking people have been trafficked and exploited in ways that it's just so profoundly wrong and who are as as a result and so vulnerable but seeing through the kind of partners we work with uh, the progress that they make and we're in a really small little area you know we we help um through the kind of safe houses um we've helped build maybe 10 or 15 um, women but through their kind of progress you just see the little i suppose the impact you can make through and not that i've made it it's not something i've done but it's through the kind of tribe community and actually 
is all about just trying to find that positive impact and not worrying that it's not changing the whole world. But if you've just got in your little bit, um, the ability to kind of make things a bit better, um, then that's a nice idea. And I think I'm going to misquote it, but um, the guy that wrote um, The Little Prince, yeah, Antoine Science, it's, he's got it's something like, all, it's called, called The Step, it's a quote about, it's like all you can do is, um, all man can do is take the next step and take a step forward. And it's, it's the same step, but all you can do is take it. And I think I always love that idea. It really doesn't really matter how, not well, doesn't matter, but however bad things are or however difficult they can seem, you can always take a step forward. And I suppose that, again, is something with Walking Trip and a lot of the books I read around the power of walking and um, some of the ideas and waypoints is... I find that such a powerful idea that you can always take a step to make things um, things better, even if they're really hard. And I, um, I suppose, yeah, I, that's probably a bit corny, but <laughs> <Love that. laughs> that would be something that I think, uh, yeah, would make me make me hope. That's a wonderful way to end. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced and distributed by Pip Saunders and Alex Hall. It's edited by Kate Bullivan. You can keep in touch at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk and you can stay up to date on Instagram at theadventurepodcast.